suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother J.S. to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, instructive, educational, and perhaps even entertaining stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce part two of John Fogarty. Creedence Clearwater Revival, and the Ark of Excellence, the continuation of the story of a band who rose from a garage to the number one band in the world within a 10-year period. And its leader originally was Tom Fogarty, and his younger brother John took over the band because John Fogarty wrote hit song after hit song. And while Tom had gracefully stepped aside to make room for his kid brother, at first at least, but but then Tom had to step aside. There was no place else to go. And kid brother John was a freight train, a literal freight train who steamrolled over his three bandmates of CCR. There was no prisoners to be taken. It was just going to be John's way. His volcanic temper allowed for no compromise. There was no discussion. And what could the other guys do about it? John was intolerable, a perfectionist whom he hardly left room for his bandmates to breathe or or to share in their rightful place of claim, Uh, of acclaim and glory to which they had earned their rightful share. John was the light of a million suns. There was not even a shadow for, for his three bandmates to occupy. He just simply overshadowed them all and was unwilling to share. But John Fogarty's songs, his hit songs, just kept on coming. And during an incredible 30-month-long period, the arc of excellence, during this run, John Fogarty, on his own, conjured up, out of the ether, Bad Moon Rising, Proud Mary, Green River, Low Die, Down on the Corner, Fortunate Son, Born on the Bayou, Have You Ever Seen the Rain, Run Through the Jungle, Who'll stop the rain? Someday never comes. Travel and band. Susie Q. Sweet Hitchhiker. Up around the bend. Wrote a song for everyone. Looking out my back door. Long as I can see the light. I mean, these are songs that are known to and loved by an entire generation or two of rock and roll fans. And John was not shy about telling the band That was his band now. This was how things were going to work. This is the sound he wanted. This is the perfection he sought. 
Things were going to be as he wanted them to be, exactly like he wanted them to be. Because why? Because they were his songs, not theirs. He wasn't interested in any counsel or advice. He wasn't interested in their ideas or recommendations. His bandmates were to provide nothing but what he wanted. And he knew exactly the sound that he wanted. So he gave orders. He provided directions and instructions. The songs would be recorded his way. He heard it all in his head. And the band member's job was simply, simply to play what he told them to play and precisely how he wanted those songs played. And even then, that was not good enough for John. But that really, that really wasn't a problem either, as we shall see. He was a taskmaster, a tyrant, and no doubt a genius. But he was vastly insecure, vastly talented, and otherworldly talent, no doubt. And the band members readily acknowledged this. They acknowledged John's brilliance. Still, they were all in it together, they argued, weren't they? Well, no, no, they were not. John would tolerate no input, no dissent. And from, from his earliest days as a kid, John had no respect for authority. He'd seen the hypocrisy in priests from his schoolboy days at private school. And he knew they could not be trusted. He was a malcontent, John was. He'd trust in no one but himself. You know, like Fleetwood Mac would sing, John was going to go his own way, do things his way. And that was the only way. With no patience for authority, John was the authority. John Fogarty was an obsessive, perfectionist, control freak. And in driving the band, now, now his band, not Tom's, he propelled, literally propelled CCR to the top of the world, to stardom, to fame, to fortune. John Fogarty made the four of them great. He made the four of them rich and famous. But in doing so, in the very process of doing so, John Fogarty killed the very soul of his bandmates. He sucked all the joy out of any room that he was in, out of the studio, from the stage, from out of the making of the music. Even the live performing of the music was ruined, as we shall see. John Fogarty gave birth to CCR. He really did. And then John Fogarty killed CCR. He just murdered the band and his three bandmates. From, from a garage band member as an eighth grader in 1959, by 1968, CCR had turned their factory into a hit machine. And by 1969, the greatest rock band in the world. But by December of 1970, CCR no longer existed. Tom Fogarty could no longer tolerate his kid brother or his kid brother's excesses. His lack of respect for, for him, Tom, and Stu, and Doug. And Tom finally made good on his off-repeated threat to quit the band. He quit. And with his departure from CCR, CCR was in fact DOA. They may not have known it yet, but it was all over. And there was no talking Tom off the ledge. There's, there's a line from the Quran that states, um, every soul uh, shall have a taste of death. 
And for Tom, he had taken all the abuse he could ever take from his younger brother. It was no longer worth it, for John had taken away from Tom and Stu and Doug the only thing they had left with respect to CCR, their ability to take their bows, as I will explain. CCR was done, was gone, was over. The music may have lived on, but the band was dead and buried. And John, John had no idea why his three bandmates so resented him and resented him so thoroughly. After all, he made them all rich and famous. He'd been the originator of all their hit songs. He was the creative genius. He wrote every single one of CCR's 17 hit songs. So what was the problem? He couldn't understand the, the envy, the jealousy, the anger, the resentment they held toward him. And John never understood, nor would he ever admit that he denied the band members the only thing that was left to them, their self-respect. And when he refused them that, he had killed off CCR for good. Uh, unlike um, the Eagles, who, who broke up and took that famous 14-year vacation only to reunite, uh, put their past behind them, reassemble, and then tour, tour the world for nearly two decades thereafter. And in the process, turn themselves into centimillionaires, you know, filling, you know, stadiums, playing before thrilled fans whom, whom sang along to the lyrics of their long, long playlist of great hits. When, when CCR imploded, CCR was literally no more and never would be. CCR had been killed off by John Fogarty. How could? How, how did this happen? Uh, a musician who once knew John Fogarty well, once said of John Fogarty, John was the oldest young man I ever knew. In the studio, he had driven the band to greatness. He sought perfection. He was obsessed. But after a, a full day recording in the studio, when the other three fellow band, band members went out for beers or went out to dinner, John would stay back in the studio, and then he'd re-record his own lead guitar. He'd replace the background vocals of the group with his own backup vocals to his own lead vocal arrangements. He'd then replace Tom's rhythm guitar with his own rhythm guitar. Then he'd replace Stu's bass with his own bass. He'd add piano, he'd add harmonica, he'd even add to Doug's percussion. The band would return from beers or dinner and listen to the song that they'd been working on all day for weeks, only to find that every sound on the recording had been produced by John. None of their contributions were included on the final recording. And this happened over and over again. All instrumentation, John's. All orchestration, John's. All vocals, John's. None of their contributions as musicians had made it to the final recording. It was hurtful. It was insulting. It was embarrassing. And it was infuriating. And it was soul-killing for professional musicians. Yet it could not be denied. John had made each of his 17 hit songs better. He was better than they were at everything. And there wasn't any denying it. I mean, still, you know, as, as, you know, as John 
uh, Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp once sang, it hurts so bad, it hurts so good. I mean, these were great musicians. They had pride, but no place, literally no place. And John just smoked them. And what were they going to do about it? Tom, uh, Doug, Stu, they seethed. Tom had routinely threatened to quit. And it was especially uh, painful for him, given that it was his younger brother that had stolen everybody's thunder and whom wasn't reluctant to tell them about it. But at least when they would play on stage in front of thousands of enthusiastic fans, they'd get their moments in the sun, get the kudos they deserve for all their efforts. Well, wouldn't they? How could they be denied? <laughs> well, be, be, before we explore exactly why this did not happen and what precipitated CCR's fireball implosion, we might want to take one last moment to reprise CCR's rise to the top of the rock world. I mean, where exactly was the origin of John Fogarty's inspiration? He, did, he didn't know where it came from. And in this, he was not alone. I, I mean, I once saw Bob Dylan at perhaps age 70 or so, interviewed by Ed Bradley on CBS's 60 Minutes, whom, whom asked Dylan how was it he had come to write so many songs that became the anthem, the anthems of his age. And didn't, Dylan didn't know. He didn't know how he did it. He didn't know the origin of the songs. He didn't know where they came from. They just came from out of the ether. He didn't know where the lyrics came from. He didn't know where the melodies came from. All he knew was that at some point they came to him. And when, and when Bradley asked Dylan if he might be able to ever do it again, without hesitation, Dylan said, no, never. Wherever it came from, it wasn't coming back again. Keith Richards is famous um, for, for many things, I should say. But one of them is the first five notes of satisfaction that came to him as he slept. He awoke recorded the five notes, the most famous notes in rock and roll history, whence he immediately fell back to sleep in, in sort of a drunken stupor, and the tape kept on running. And in the morning, when Richards awoke, he didn't remember a thing. He didn't, he didn't remember anything. But he rewound the tape, and he heard those five notes. Dun, 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 dun. And he said to himself, now, now that's interesting. He knew he had something pretty good, pretty damn good. And, and those notes were like a gift from the gods, the rock gods. And satisfaction was born from those five notes that came out of the ether. Both John Fogarty and Bob Dylan, as it turns out, were avid note takers. They constantly wrote down... Um, on paper, phrases, idioms, expressions, figures of speech, verbiage, anything they liked or that had stuck with them, snippets of ideas, these would ultimately all morph into the bodywork that formed the heart of a tune or a chorus. Note-taking was, was, was just a habit that paid dividends because well, we're, we're all aware of just how ephemeral are good ideas. 
you know, like dreams, if not written down immediately upon awaken, awakening, they're gone. And they're most likely they're gone forever. It's just smoke that dissipates. They're just, just it doesn't exist anymore. And, and so we find John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival, CCR, the man who re- relentlessly drove his band to fame and fortune. We, we find him as satisfying all the criteria, checking all the boxes that are required for status as an undeniable genius whose arc of excellence was, was meteoric in nature, but whom also qualifies as one of our tortured souls, one of those who suffer from terribilita, the torture of the talent. There's, there's, there's a scene in Dante's Inferno where I believe it's Virgil. Um, he's being taken on a tour of this, one of the, uh, you know, by a guide um, on one of the, you know, to tour one of the inner circles of Dante's hell in which, you know, the condemned who have been found guilty of certain levels of various serious sins, you know, mortal sins, have been have been ordered confined to suffer various tortures in perpetuity and the guide asks Virgil if he'd like to interview one of the condemned from a particular circle of hell and and when Virgil says yeah he he really would like to interview someone a a woman is brought forth and she emerges from her circle of hell to be interviewed by by Virgil and she is red-faced, sweating, and she's obviously under extreme duress or has been under extreme duress. And Virgil poses questions, and the, and the woman politely, calmly answers those questions. And this goes on for a while. And finally, after a certain number of, of, of answers to questions have been provided, she interrupts um, Virgil politely and, and by the way of apology says she'd like to answer more of Virgil's questions, but she can't do that because I must get back to my burning. And I have never forgotten this scene, though I haven't read Dante's Inferno in what I would estimate to be a quarter of a century. But this is how I picture John, John Fogarty, immensely talented, but immensely damaged and forever to be tortured, an existential sort of suffering. And, and no relief will ever relieve him of his suffering. He can't be relieved of his suffering. It is not possible. It is his fate and he can't be helped. He must suffer and nothing can ever be done to relieve him of his pain. But unfortunately for others who come into John's inner circle, they too are now going to experience pain, a lot of it. John's pain is something that he will share and displace onto others. He he won't be relieved of his own measure of pain, that's for sure. But now they too, those who have come near him, they will have to suffer as well. That's the price of being around John Fogarty. And this was so unfortunate for, as we're, as I hope to explain in our next podcast, his, his CCR bandmates 
did not deserve this. They did not deserve to suffer the way they had to suffer, the, the pain that John brought with him. He brought, he brought down on those three guys the hammer of the gods. It was biblical in both scope and duration. And it's so sad because it didn't really have to be this way. But it's on this point that we're going to end our discussion for today. And we will get into the precise method by which John tortured his mates enough that the whole CCR experience came to an abrupt end. And it's sad. But thanks for listening and have a nice day. A better day than John Fogarty would have. Bye-bye. Inside game just yesterday Just made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be returned Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I've been
astray I'm just the chief 